Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 9, The CIA and Sex. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. The conventional explanation for the Watergate burglary has always been that of a silly, bungled campaign spying operation in which the Nixon campaign was seeking Democratic strategic information in the DNC headquarters. We have spoken in earlier episodes about Baldwin's overhearing conversations of apparent prostitutes and their johns. We have also covered the prosecutor's plan to show the burglar's interest in these tawdry assignations based upon the purported motive that Hunt was looking to extort Spencer Oliver Sr. Supposedly, Hunt wished to push Oliver to step aside, or at least sought to convince higher-ups to favor Hunt over Oliver, as the two vied for control of the fat Mullen CIA cover contract. But if the prosecution was correct, Watergate would not have been an authorized covert CIA operation, but a frolic and detour by Hunt for his own personal business purposes. Hunt was unable to present at trial his opposing explanation of why the CIA wished this to be seen as a presidentially approved agency operation, which he would do in pursuing his CIA defense. The public was thereby deprived of viewing the highly sensitive inner workings of the CIA and of an intriguing aspect of Watergate, one which would render Nixon of intelligence agency abuse. With both prosecution and defense arguing for CIA involvement, albeit of two different kinds. Our subject in this episode is an exploration of the CIA's interest in sexually explicit talk, that is to say, its institutional motive. The CIA has always had an interest in sex as a means of manipulating or gaining information from a subject of interest. One such CIA initiative, which was publicly revealed only because of the Senate's Church Committee hearings in 1975, was the operation of Colonel Harry White in the 1950s in San Francisco. White recruited prostitutes, then set up what he thought to be an alluring sex pad, complete with red velvet flocked wallpaper on San Francisco's fashionably hip Telegraph Hill. Through a two-way mirror, White watched the proceedings, often fueled by a dose of experimental drug supplied by the CIA and served up by the cooperating prostitutes on their johns. The idea was to determine the best time and method for gaining information. One answer on timing was immediately following sex. But White's operation may have been among the more innocent of CIA research projects, which was similar to other sex pads around the country. The CIA had pursued a stomach-turning set of illegal domestic programs called MKUltra, Project Bluebird, and Project Artichoke. In these experiments on unwitting humans, a subject would be given a dose of some psychogenic drug to assess his reactions. The administration of a large dose of LSD led the CIA's Dr. Frank Olson to leap out of a building to his death. I personally was assigned a matter as an assistant U.S. attorney in which an unwitting New York tennis pro checked into a local VA hospital for depression and anxiety issues. He was given massive doses of LSD without his knowledge. 
far beyond that which today a recreational user would need to get to strawberry fields. Over the following days, the nursing staff carefully noted the excruciating pain and extreme distress of the overwhelmed patient until he finally passed to his eternal reward. I know this because I read those records. The hospital and the state and the federal officials lied to the widow, after which they sent each other congratulatory letters for keeping the matter concealed. Correspondence included the state attorney general for New York, later U.S. Senator Jacob Javits, Eisenhower Administration Attorney General Herbert Brownell, and others. I was approached in 1976 after the church hearings revealed these events in my role as an assistant U.S. attorney by the widow's lawyer. I advised him that the widow needed a special congressional appropriation bill to receive compensation since there would clearly be a defense of the case under applicable standards. Any tort case, in short, would certainly be dismissed at this late date. I understand that, in fact, is what occurred, per my advice, and Congress, in its wisdom, based on recommendations from the Department of Justice, compensated the widow. But to this day, I shudder at the casual cruelty displayed by these records, and the congratulatory notes follow. My point here is that nothing is beyond the pale for the CIA. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, as brilliantly unearthed by author Jim Hogan, The CIA took great interest in the research of Duke University's psychology and neuroscience departments into building what they termed, quote, psychological machines, unquote, replicating subjects of interest. With enough information about a person, it was hypothesized, one could in essence build a psychological avatar, which would then the CIA would learn to manipulate. Of course, sexual information, including odd proclivities of the subject, was considered highly useful in such endeavors. Any such research within the CIA would have been conducted within a special department called the Office of Security, also the OS, which reported directly to CIA Director Richard Helms, the only section so doing, obviously suggesting highly sensitive work. Within the OS was an even more secretive office called the Security Research Staff, or SRS. James McCord, who we know to later be the security director for the CRP, had been assigned to OS and reportedly was active in the SRS as well. Howard Hunt as well has been assigned to the OS uh, prior to his retirement. Both Hunt and McCord had worked together on the Bay of Pigs invasion, as we noted earlier, and the Second Naval Guerrilla Operations, highly covert operations geared to deposing Fidel Castro. We note that, according to Liddy, when he introduced Hunt to McCord... Both of them feigned not knowing one another. It's self-proof that these two spies were still following undercover protocols. After all, they clearly knew each other and had been working together for years. In the wake of the Watergate burglaries and his suspicion that the CIA was somehow involved, President Nixon had removed Richard Helms from his CIA post as director, effective January 1973 at which point Helms destroyed massive files, including considerable hours of taped materials. Whatever secrets those files held are now, of course, lost to posterity, deepening much of the mystery surrounding Watergate. As we will see later, these secrets were so sensitive that lives were threatened and perhaps taken. But we can derive some clue from these CIA programs that one of its covert activities was an operation we call Watergate. If the need arose, as we explained in Episode 2, for the CIA to legalize a program involving prostitutes and taping or wiretapping, 
then it would need the presidential authorization required to immunize the operation from further criminal jeopardy. But what clues do we have that the CIA, in the work of Hunt, was interested in sexual information and therefore was interested in using Watergate and any approval by the White House as a way of immunizing its prostitute taping operation? One set of hints comes from a statement of a CIA employee, Rob Roy Ratliff, dated January 17, 1974 uncovered late in the day as the result of two honest CIA security officers. Much of it is redacted for public consumption, but what is revealed is helpful. Ratliff had been assigned to the White House as a CIA liaison, primarily facilitating transfers of secure pouches between the CIA and the White House, usually from its NSC staff. Ratliff had been told by his predecessor that Hunt routinely put documents in this pouch, again suggesting an ongoing CIA relationship with Hunt. The predecessor told him that he had read some of Hunt's transmissions and that Hunt routinely documented gossip, primarily of a sexual nature, about White House habitats. Ratliff himself happened to see one transmission of the same ilk. So certainly part of Hunt's duties involves spying on and reporting about insider sexual gossip, for which his undercover employer clearly had a strong appetite. Perhaps a much stronger piece of evidence emerged in the FBI's very thorough investigation of the burglary and all leads coming and going. The FBI interviewed one Miriam Furbershaw, a former CIA analyst who had rented her Rockville, Maryland in-law apartment to James McCord. McCord had led her to believe that his actual residence was far away, whereas in fact it was nearby. That McCord rented from Furbershaw likely stemmed from his belief that an ex-CIA employee would not give up an agency agent, and is therefore itself some circumstantial suggestion that McCord was acting undercover, still for the CIA. Unluckily for McCord, Furbershaw ran a tight ship, and she had a strict no-women rule for her renters. After several visits by distraught young women, Furbershaw evicted McCord. On some occasions, according to Furbershaw, a young girl visitor appeared distressed and emotional. Giving the recognized rectitude of the hardline Baptist McCord, it is highly improbable that these young women were for McCord's pleasure. The implication is also present that McCord had been importuning the young ladies into doing more than providing sexual favors, and what other distressing tasks they were asked to perform would be left to our spy thriller imaginations. Covert drugging of their customers, of course, would be a logical explanation for the emotionality shown by McCord's female visitors. But we're speculating here to a great degree as to the motive for this widespread female distress. Another important curiosity which arose from the Furbershaw interview was the discovery by a telephone company technician that McCord's apartment had stored a considerable amount of bugging material, about which he duly informed Furbershaw. So, from Furbershaw's and Ratliff's statements, along with the CIA's history of skullduggery and human research, we can infer a motive for the CIA to gain presidential approval to bug the DNC and its prostitute referral program, which would then legalize an otherwise outlaw program, hopefully for the CIA in its entirety and not just as to the Watergate matter. There is one more key piece of evidence corroborated by three credible witnesses. One, Lou or Lewis Russell, was a veteran D.C. investigator who did some work for McCord and Associates. 
McCord's private security firm that he formed after retirement. More about Russell in coming episodes. For our present purposes, the three witnesses each told of Russell's hilarious recounting of his electronically overhearing prostitutes in their johns. And this was before Watergate. The witnesses, Treasury Agent Kennard Smith, Investigator Bob Smith, and Russell's friend and well-known lawyer Bernard Fensterwald, were all reliable, and each told from his own vantage point stories consistent with one another. In short, Russell had been taping prostitutes plying their trade, and had been listening to his great amusement, presumably on behalf of the CIA, as McCord's contractor. What conclusions can we draw from all of this, and what questions are thereby raised? First, it seems the CIA would have a motive to tape prostitutes with influential Johns, and likely had been so taping. If so, we conclude that such a domestic program, unless approved by the president in some form or fashion, was illegal. Those involved, if caught, could go to jail and lose pensions. If a wide swath of CIA employees were involved, especially if considerable documentation had been amassed, it would not be beneath the CIA to threaten to kill anyone who threatened to expose the program. And to expose the program in relation to Watergate would have also been to expose the flimsy tissue of presidential approval in that operation, procured ostensibly by deceit, thus arguably invalid in any case, and worse, criminal. More frighteningly, such exposure would likely reveal other actions which lacked even a tissue of presidential approval, and thus were clearly criminal. So yes, murder would not have been beyond the contemplation of an agency that assassinates officials in other countries. How would the CIA obtain such approval for its covert prostitute taping operation? It would need, one would infer, approval by a person with legal authorization from the president, sufficient under the Constitution to validate a national security operation. Wouldn't the best way to obtain such approval be to entice one of Nixon's all-too-eager lieutenants to authorize an operation for the seemingly political benefit of the lieutenant? Nixon was known to consistently, during dark moods, suggest thuggish maneuvers, usually repenting later. All that would be needed, as in the Ellsberg Fielding burglary, to convince the lieutenant of the benefit of the operation would be the potential satisfaction of a churlish president. We, of course, will never have on-camera confessions by those with a clear motive to continue a concealment of their crimes. But in coming episodes, let us look at the circumstantial evidence for corroboration that the Watergate burglaries were meant to sanitize an otherwise illegal prostitute taping operation of the CIA while providing opposition intelligence for an ambitious young White House lieutenant. We will explore in coming episodes this evidence. Let me add a couple of smaller notes to this discussion. The week before the second break-in, James McCord gave an odd assignment to his underling Alfred Baldwin III. The order dictated to Liddy by Magruder on Monday, June 12, to go into the DNC a second time was vehemently opposed by Howard Hunt, presumably representing the agency's view. If our analysis of the matter is close to correct, the CIA would neither need nor want a second break-in. Why? Because, at least under our theory, no more benefit and only risk was involved from the CIA's perspective. The CIA had already established presidential authorization for a program of wiretapping escorts and their johns, supposedly for national security purposes. That is all the CIA wanted or needed, because this White House inch 
was to be made into a CIA mile covering all similar CIA programs. So under our narrative, the CIA would not be thrilled because the second burglary was all risk and no reward. It would batten its hatches both against the risk of arrest and also other risks. What were the risks it foresaw and what did it need to do in that regard? That week, McCord gave Baldwin a seemingly bizarre assignment, one which he had never previously hinted and certainly one Liddy never heard of or authorized. Baldwin, McCord said, was to have some, quote, fun, unquote, that week of June 12. He would provide some expense money for Baldwin to frequent D.C.'s most notorious hooker haven, and that is saying something, the lounge in the Watergate Hotel next to the Watergate office building. He was supposed to watch for, quote, big shots, unquote, hooking up. What has never been explained is how, among the many besuited apparent bigwigs in the lounge, Baldwin was supposed to know who was important, or, for that matter, what their names were, or, finally, what actions would be taken even if identified. But frequent the lounge Baldwin did that week, as he got schnockered on several nights, he indeed witnessed much activity, which, without a camera, would be meaningless to posterity. How do we analyze this strange tableau? We suspect that McCord was confident that, as an OS, and more importantly, an SRS officer, he could later justify all of this on national security grounds, and Baldwin's mission would fortify his justification. This was all part of a mission, McCord would explain, to see who was subject to blackmail and thus a national security risk. This, we presume, would be part and parcel of any CIA defense if caught. SRS, the security research staff, had a mission of ferreting out security risks, sex always being a main factor in blackmail or foreign recruitment. Let's talk more about the CIA's sexual information mission. Within the CIA's secretive OS, or Office of Security, there is an even more secretive department, the Security Research Staff, or SRS as we have referred to it, headed by General Paul Gaynor. Its role was to sniff out disloyal or risky national security threats. Gaynor personally was obsessed that there might be a so-called, quote, Manchurian candidate, so named after a hit movie, in which a harmless all-American-looking Soviet mole had penetrated the U.S. political system to chart the doom of America. Gaynor was also obsessed with sex as a compromising tool of foreign governments or as a way of extracting information. So attentive to sexual blackmail was Gaynor that he compiled a massive 300,000-person file on every convicted, suspected, rumored, arrested, or perhaps different-seeming person with actual or alleged or suspected homosexual leanings. It was known in that part of the CIA as Gaynor's, quote, fag file, a name that tells you all you need to know about the state of enlightenment of Gaynor's group. To be fair, in the late 60s and early 70s, homosexuality had not yet been widely accepted and therefore, in absurd circular reasoning, a source of blackmail and national security risk. One reasonably infers as well that Gaynor was also interested in heterosexual sex, especially if in some way verboten, as in prostitution. To use an example from current times, 
recall the somewhat odd excuse of otherwise intelligent acting Attorney General Sally Yates, an Obama holdover at the beginning of the Trump administration, who justified on the basis of potential blackmail targeting her attention to the, quote, ping prostitute, unquote, rumor regarding Trump. So, sex as a basis for investigation regarding national security has not been eradicated even today. But what, one may ask, did Gaynor's obsession with sex have to do with Watergate? For one thing, both James McCord and Howard Hunt had worked for Gaynor in the SRS, and if they were falsely retired as of the time of Watergate, were currently working for Gaynor. Gaynor's SRS staff often received information on sexual deviation from D.C. Chief of Police Captain Roy E. Blick. One of Blick's intelligence officers was Gary Bittenbender, who had a close liaison with the CIA through James McCord. The names of Gaynor, Blick, and Bittenbender will come up in future episodes. So let us leave this subject with one thought. If sexual talk was a target in Watergate, it is a logical inference that the CIA was involved, especially if on the burglary team there were two supposedly retired SRS operatives, James McCord and Howard Hunt. We hope this discussion has gone a long way to solving one more mystery of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate what really happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.